Good morning, church. That was a sweet time of worship. I don't, I don't know. I think we've had, have we ever had a full drum kit in our church since we replanted this church? I don't think so. Oh, thanks, Bob. Yeah. Bob would know, okay? He's been here since day one. Um, so that was really awesome, and uh, it was just cool to just see the people of God worshiping Jesus. That is always my, well, reading God's Word, studying God's Word is my favorite part, but seeing people worship through song is amazing, and it is a joy. Um, as Pastor Daniel just went ahead and said, we had just finished our series in the book of Colossians. And um, if you didn't, if you weren't with us for that whole series, I would encourage you to go back to the podcast. It was a great time looking over Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And it was so helpful and fruitful, and it was a huge blessing. And so we're out of that now, and we're about to move into a minor prophet. Habakkuk is something that we're looking towards. When we'll get there, we're not sure. Maybe next week, maybe the next couple weeks. But that is the next book, the Old Testament book, that we'll be going into. But like Daniel said, we're taking a little quick stop in the book of Philemon. Now, there's two reasons for that. One, because there is a strong case that Philemon is a companion letter to the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians. So that's one really good reason to follow up with that. The other reason, which is not that much, not good of a reason, is because you guys have the scripture journals already. You guys have it. It works with the Colossian book. I was telling Andrew and Liza this morning, sometimes that's how the Holy Spirit leads us into the next book, is, you know what? The scripture journal is there. Let's go ahead and go with it. Now, you may be familiar with the book of Philemon, Maybe you're not. It's kind of an odd book. It's a short book. It's one of the shortest books or one of the shortest letters that the Apostle Paul put out there. It's not often quoted. It's not as theologically deep or as extensive as Paul's other letters. And here's an interesting fact. It is the only letter that Paul has written that doesn't explicitly share the gospel. What the heck, Paul? Paul's like the guy who always shares the gospel, right? So it's a unique letter for sure. It is believed to be written by one person, that is Paul. The content of the letter involves three people. There are several names mentioned, but it only really involves three people. One of these, per- these people need forgiveness. The other person needs to forgive. And then the third person is the guy who's trying to help facilitate this reconciliation. So we can identify the main theme of this letter as forgiveness. Philemon is a letter about forgiveness. Now, what's interesting also about this book is it's not a lecture or a formal teaching on forgiveness that Paul normally does in his letters to the church. Oftentimes, he's getting theologically deep and rich when it comes to expounding on certain topics, attributes, virtues, or doctrines of God. This letter is unique because it is essentially a record of real pastoral counsel given to aid in the forgiveness and the restoration of two church members, two Christians in the early church. So think of this letter then as us being flies on the wall, listening in, in in Paul's office as he's counseling a man named Philemon and a man named Onesimus on what it means to forgive and reconcile their relationship. I think that's pretty helpful to see kind of in real time what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like, especially in particular situations, because I think we understand what forgiveness is up here, and we want to do forgiveness in our hearts, but as far as like what that looks like in different situations, it's, it can get a little muddy. It's not as black and white as it may seem when it comes to asking for forgiveness or giving someone forgiveness. So, 
I think this is going to be a very helpful book and study or case study in what reconciliation looks like on both ends of the spectrum, both as the person who needs forgiveness and the person who needs to forgive. And like the gospel, in this letter, we're going to see that it is the story of reconciliation that pushes against our flesh, it pushes against the culture, and it pushes against what the world sees as humanly wise and just and even fair. But I believe it will lead us to worship Jesus this morning because it draws our attention to the unfathomable grace of God towards sinners like you and like me. And I don't know about you, but when that happens, it leads me to worship the Lord. Now, before we get into the letter, I want to do some character development. This is going to help us kind of understand who it is that's in this letter, who Paul is writing to, who Paul is writing about, and who Paul is in general. So we have Onesimus. This is the man who needs forgiveness. We have Philemon. He needs to forgive. And then we have the apostle Paul who is trying to help them get there. Now, Onesimus, we don't know much about him. But from this letter, we can kind of reconstruct his story or his biography. So here's what we know about Onesimus. We know that Onesimus was a slave of Philemon, or at least he used to be. Verse 16 alludes to that. Now, this doesn't tell us his ethnicity, because slavery in the ancient world had little to do with ethnicity. It had mostly had to do with social class. The majority of the working population in in the ancient world, were considered slaves or bondservants or indentured servants. Even doctors and teachers could be called bondservants or slaves. So Onesimus being a slave doesn't tell us his ethnicity, doesn't tell us much about him other than the fact that he was a man who did not have means, he was someone who did not have money, and also it tells us that he belonged to Philemon. Now we know Onesimus wronged and deserted Philemon. Verse 12 tells us that. It indicates that Onesimus ran away from Paul and is now being sent back by, excuse me, ran away from Philemon and is now being sent back by Paul. So he was a deserter, which is subject to terrible punishment in the ancient world, even death. Verse 18 indicates that Onesimus has also possibly wronged Philemon in another way. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. It could have been that he robbed Philemon or that he, I don't know, falsely accused Philemon of something or slandered Philemon. We don't know. It could have been simply just the fact that he left Philemon, and that is what he's considered to be as wronging him. Now, we know also that in God's providence, Onesimus encountered Paul and was converted. Verse 10 and 15 tell us that. Somewhere along the way, Onesimus, he ran into the apostle Paul. He heard the gospel. God opened his heart to receive the gospel, and he was converted. Now, we don't know all the details, Um, We don't know what led him to Paul. We don't know how it all came about. But what we do know is that Paul kind of alludes to God's wonderful providence and all of that's happened that's brought Onesimus to Paul and now is bringing Onesimus back to Philemon. From there, we know Onesimus served Paul while he was in prison and became a dear brother. Paul describes him as useful in verse 11. He describes him as a good servant in verse 13, and he describes him as a beloved brother in verse 16. And lastly, we know that he was genuinely converted and desired to reconcile his relationship with his master Philemon, even though it could have cost him his life. 
We know this because Onesimus most likely hand-delivered this letter to Philemon, along with the letter of Colossians, with the help of Tychicus. We read about that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 and 9, and we covered that section last week. Now, in this letter, Onesimus is the one who needs forgiveness. He is the one we can identify as the man who needs forgiveness from Philemon. And from what we can tell, his repentance is genuine and he is humbly seeking it. Now, Philemon, we know even less about him. We don't know too much about Philemon. We know that Philemon was a prominent figure in the church in Colossae. He hosts a church in his home, verse 2 tells us, which tells us he's either a leader in the church or he's possibly just a, a, a lay elder or he's just hosting the home, but he is someone who is a prominent figure in the church in Colossae. We know he has a family. In the greeting in verse 2, it mentions Apphia, who is believed to be Philemon's wife. It also mentions Archippus, who is believed to be Philemon's son, or he is someone who's in the church in the ministry serving as a leader there as well. But most scholars believe that it is Philemon's son. We know he is a wealthy man. He's hosting a church, which required a big enough home to actually host a church. Now, these weren't huge churches. They were small churches. But still, to be able to host a church in your home meant you had a bigger home. Not only that, that we know he owned at least one slave, which was for the wealthy and not for the poor. So Philemon was a man of means. And it is believed that he too was converted by Paul in verse 19. It appears that Philemon personally knew Paul, and they seemed to be close enough for Paul to actually invite himself over for a couple nights when he said in verse 22, get a room ready because I'm coming in a few days. Lastly, Philemon is known as a man who loves the Lord and loves the church. He's known as a man who loves the Lord and loves the church. This much is made clear in Paul's letter here. Our last character is the Apostle Paul formerly a persecutor of the church, encountered the living Christ on the road to Damascus, was changed forever, went on to preach the gospel and plant churches all around the Mediterranean Sea, and is believed to be responsible for writing one-third of the New Testament, which is a good chunk of the Bible. The Apostle Paul is no big deal. No, he's huge. These are important figures that we read about in this letter. Now let's jump into our text and work our way slowly through this letter so we can understand what is actually happening here. The first three verses, Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter begins with a greeting that is typical to Paul's letters. He begins with the authorship. He states himself as the author. He also identifies himself as a prisoner for Christ. At this point in his ministry, he most likely was in prison in Rome around the same time that the letter to the Colossians went out. So scholars believe that these letters went out at the same time. And read about that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. And then he mentions Timothy. Now, Timothy, he was not an author of this letter. He's mentioned kind of as a co-author, but most likely they use Timothy as a trusted source to validate the letter came from Paul. But also, in light of that, Timothy was a young pastor, essentially a pastor in training. 
So the way we can view this as Timothy is shadowing Paul in this counseling appointment. He's actually learning and seeing how Paul is addressing real-life situations when it comes to two people reconciling and seeking forgiveness. We also have the recipients here, Philemon, a beloved fellow worker. We have Apphia, and we have Archippus. Then finally, Paul greets the church. He says, and the church in your house. He says that in verse 2. Now, Philemon is believed to be a personal letter written to Philemon. But in the greeting, we have this address to the church. Now, this could mean that this letter was not just hand-delivered to Philemon, but that he actually had this letter read out, read out loud in front of the entire church for them to hear what's going on and to be helping and aiding in this whole situation as far as reconciling these two people for accountability, for help, for aid. It could also mean because the church was so involved, they were actually meeting in Philemon's home, they would have known Onesimus. They would have known the drama and the problem and what he did to Philemon. And so this could have been Paul's way of saying, this is not just for Philemon to do, but every single one of you as church members need to receive this brother back and also need to reconcile with him. Now, we don't know that for sure, but here's what we do know for sure, that this letter is directly pointed to Philemon. Paul is talking directly to Philemon about a situation in his life. Now, Paul then proceeds with his standing greeting in uh, verse 3. And this greeting appears in all 13 of Paul's letters. It is the grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we read that. That's Paul's like sign-off. That's Paul's greeting. I love it. Now, we can fly past this greeting without really seeing how important it is. What is Paul saying here? Is it just something he says, like his opening line? Everything Paul says has meaning, and everything, and when Paul says everything, it has meaning as well. This greeting, then, is sort of a prayer. It's a prayer for the recipients of this letter to receive his teaching and to bear fruit in keeping it. He's essentially praying this, grace to you or grace for you to receive and obey the word of Christ and his teachings. And the fruit that's yielded from operating in this grace is peace. Peace with God and, of course, peace with each other. So when Paul writes this at the beginning of his letters, his prayer is that God will provide the grace for us to hear and the peace for us to live it out amongst ourselves. What a great way to begin a letter like this. What a great way to understand Paul's letters when we actually are opening them and reading them is, Lord, give me grace to receive and then help me to live it out and produce the peace that comes from studying and living in light of your word. This prayer is for us today, church, as we study this letter. Now, the next few verses tell us Philemon's reputation through Paul's prayer and his encouragement. Philemon, verses 4 through 7. Let's go ahead and read those together. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I hear, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul is encouraging Philemon here. He's telling him that whenever he thinks of him in prayer, his prayers go more like this. Thank you, God, for someone like Philemon. Thank you for his love. 
Thank you for his faith. Thank you for Philemon being able to express and share the love of Christ and refresh all the other saints that are around him. Now, Paul also lets Philemon know how much joy and comfort he gets from them, from, from Philemon. He is refreshed to hear how much love and how much ministry is happening in Philemon's house. Paul is making it very clear here that Philemon is a real follower of Jesus. Paul is making that very clear. His witness is one of love and faithfulness to God and to all the saints. In John 13, Jesus said this in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Philemon was known by Paul and by the church for his love. And this is important to know because considering the request that is just around the corner, Philemon's going to need this encouragement. Now, in verse 6, Paul prays a quick prayer for Philemon. He says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, at first glance, this may sound like a prayer that Philemon's faith will grow as he's evangelizing or as he's sharing the gospel with people in his community. But considering the surrounding verses and considering the context of the letter and the, the, the request that's about to come, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. It's more likely that Paul is praying in light of the situation. And the situation is going to call for forgiveness and reconciliation with an individual that has seriously wronged Philemon. So the prayer is more like this. Paul is asking that as Philemon is presented with this coming opportunity to share his faith, in other words, share in Christ's forgiveness, it will be effective for his growing in every good thing that he has in Christ, namely the forgiveness and the reconciliation that's found in Jesus. Now, Paul is leading up to something here. And this prayer is for God to prepare Philemon's heart for it and to grow in his faith through it. Now, there are two reasons why Paul brings up Philemon's love and faithfulness here. Number one, like I said before, he does it just to encourage Philemon. He wants to edify Philemon. He wants to encourage him in his faith, to encourage him and stir him and spur him on to keep living a life that represents Christ well. Now, imagine if you got a letter from one of your heroes in the faith, whether it be Tim Keller, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, Mark Dever, Daniel Hooper. That's for Erica. No, it's for all of us. <laughs> imagine if you got a letter from one of them encouraging in you your faith, saying, hey, every time I think of you, I just thank God for the love that you show and that you share. Every time I hear about what you're doing as far as the love that you're showing to the other Christians in your community and your church, I'm refreshed by that. Paul is encouraging Philemon here, and I love that. He would be blessed, and we would be blessed as well. The second thing, or the second reason why Paul brings up his reputation here is because he is about to give him, Philemon, a really challenging situation to love a fellow brother in Christ and live up to his reputation. I'm not going to call this a butter-up, but I am going to say he is setting Philemon up to think about his reputation and then think about living in light of reputation in this next 
uh, situation that's coming his way. Now, he's kind of priming the pump here. He is masterfully and pastorally leading in with affirmation and encouragement and testimony of Philemon's love and faith towards fellow Christians. And now, again, he's going to give Philemon a great opportunity to exercise his faith. Here's what you are known for, brother. Keep living in light of that. Keep living in this way. Now, what's interesting is if Philemon doesn't forgive Onesimus, it would contradict all that Paul is saying about him here. So it would seem that Paul is applying a lot of pressure, right? It's kind of like, here's, here's what you're known for. Now I'm going to give you an opportunity to actually live that out. It sounds like a lot of pressure, but it would be more appropriate for us to understand this as Paul here is just being confident. Not confident in himself, confident that Philemon is who he has shown himself to be, someone who genuinely loves Jesus. Now here comes the request in verses 8 through 21. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me, or that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, Paul chooses an interesting way to begin this request. He is essentially saying, I could pull rank on you right now. I am the Apostle Paul, but for love's sake, I'm going to ask you first. Now, I don't know how many of us would feel comfortable leading into a request like that, but Paul does it. Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul considered himself Philemon's spiritual father because scholars believe that Paul led Philemon to Christ and right here, we are definitely picking up on those fatherly tones, right? I can remember a handful of times where my dad looked at me and said, basically, I can either tell you what to do, or you can do what's right. And he gave me the opportunity to do what's right. Or my dad would just look at me, and he would telepathically tell me, you know what to do, do it, or I will tell you what to do. So we're picking up on Paul's fatherly tones here to his um, son in the faith, uh, Philemon. Paul seems a little pushy here, borderline manipulative, but considering Paul's character, it would be more accurate to view his approach, again, as strong and confident and not pushy. We can trust that if Paul says his appeal out of love, that it genuinely is. After all, this letter is to bring about reconciliation, is to bring about love, is to bring about forgiveness. So instead of commanding Philemon to do what is right out of duty or requirement, Paul chooses to make an earnest request for him to do what's right out of love. Now this brings up an important lesson about forgiveness. And that is that forgiveness cannot be forced. Forgiveness can't be forced. Now, I have people in my life that I'm around every single day 
And the lesson that I've learned so far is that I cannot force them to forgive from the heart. I'm talking about my young children. They are amazing. They are a blessing. But when they fight, my two-year-old and my, my five-year-old in particular, almost five, when they fight, I can train them and teach them what forgiveness, I can tell them what forgiveness is, and they will actually move forward in the actions of forgiveness as far as saying they're sorry or asking for forgiveness. But as far as like me forcing the little hearts to actually understand what it is and genuinely mean that, I can't force that. I can only do my best to teach them and raise them in the ways of the Lord, to model it, and to point them to Christ, and to keep showing them what forgiveness actually looks like according to the gospel. Forgiveness can't be forced. I have old friends and family who have broken relationships with, because of all kinds of offenses. And you know what? They have, some of them have claimed, oh, forgiveness has taken place. But when that name is brought up, or that person is around, or if a picture pops up on social media, what looks like when I'm around them is that anything but forgiveness has taken place. They may have gone through the emotions of forgiveness. They may be cordial. But as far as forgiving from the heart and genuinely love them, that cannot be forced. You can't force forgiveness. It must flow from a heart filled with love and compassion, a heart that desires to mend and restore, and really a heart that is filled with love. Not to say it will always come easy or that it won't come at great personal cost. We'll talk about more about that a little bit later. But forgiveness has to come from a heart that genuinely desires to love God, even if the desire to love your neighbor is not there yet. And I say yet because that love needs to be there. Oftentimes, forgiveness flows easiest from a heart that is painfully aware of its own sin and its own need for forgiveness. Now, Paul's main appeal to Philemon is for him to receive Onesimus back into his home and into his care. And receive him no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother in Christ, verse 16 tells us. Then Paul goes a step further and he says, receive him back to me, receive him back as if he were me himself, verse 17 tells us. Again, for Philemon, no pressure, but Paul is laying it on him. Now, to understand how big of a request this is, we need to talk about the society that Philemon lived in. In the ancient world, forgiveness was a sign of weakness. If you forgave someone, you were considered weak, soft, especially in a situation like Philemon's here. For him to forgive a runaway slave that possibly stole from him would have been an even greater sign of weakness in his community and in his circle of friends. No doubt his neighbors knew. Um, they knew that Onesimus ran away. So for him to receive him back with no consequences could bring shame on his family not to mention if he had other indentured servants or slaves, what would they do? Would they be encouraged, just to, encouraged to disobey because of the leniency that Philemon is showing towards Onesimus? Would they revolt and be upset that Onesimus was taken back, um, that Onesimus was taken back and treated just like one of the other servants or slaves? Would they respond like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son? who is filled with jealousy and anger and rage when the father receives the son back in open arms? Or would they, now to be, would they now pretend to be Christian, recognizing that now they can kind of get away with stuff? Well, if Onesimus is claiming to be a Christian, he's forgiven all of his offenses, maybe if we join the church or 
pretend to be followers of Christ, we also can get away with things like this. And what about Philemon here? No doubt this would have been upsetting to this man, seeing this former servant come to him, come to his door, someone who has wronged him and his family that has betrayed his trust, and now he's standing in front of him asking for a pardon. Legally, Philemon could have had him punished, could have had him beaten, even killed under Roman law. At the least, Philemon could have done is just made Onesimus pay everything back, and then some, demanding Onesimus to right the wrong. It would have been fair, and it would have been just in Philemon's situation, right? Now, all of these things could have been going or swirling around in Philemon's head as he's reading this letter, which puts him in a really tough spot. But Paul doesn't just leave him with this request. He actually gives him three reasons why he should forgive and reconcile with Onesimus, and these reasons, I think, are very helpful for us today as the church. So let's go through those. The first reason Philemon should forgive Onesimus is because forgiveness is required. Verse 8, Paul says, Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. He's speaking of forgiveness there. He's speaking of pursuing reconciliation. Now, Paul doesn't give Philemon a reason for why forgiveness is required here in the letter to Philemon. That's most likely because Paul knew that Philemon already understands this. The gospel that Paul preached to Philemon most assuredly included the need that every man and every woman and every child has for forgiveness. When we fell from grace in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, we were separated from him. We were immediately spiritually dead and left with a debt that we could not pay. But God's desire was for us to be saved. He desired for us to experience forgiveness. The prophet Daniel spoke of God's forgiveness this way in Daniel 9.9, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Mercy and forgiveness belong to God. They originated from him. The psalmist sang of God's love and forgiveness in Psalm 86.5. He said, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Forgiveness was born out of God's goodness and God's love put on display in the person of Jesus. As a Christian, forgiveness of sin is our first need, right? And it's not only it's not only the first need we have, it's a need that we have and need every single day. We're consistently confessing, consistently repenting, consistently asking for forgiveness. But as far as the way God views you and I as Christians, he views us as forgiven, done, made righteous, made whole, made holy. When we experience the love and forgiveness of God, our love is stirred up, right? It grows bigger and stronger each day as we further grasp how wonderful, how powerful, and how loving God is to send his son to die on a cross so that we might experience his love and forgiveness. And there is nothing that waters the seeds of love for God more than growing in our awareness of how great of a sinner we are, but how great of a sinner he is. And that is what builds and brings up our love. Now, it should come as no surprise to us that forgiveness is a vital part of living the Christian life. 
but not just vertical forgiveness, right? Not just between us and God, but also horizontal forgiveness. Forgiving and reconciling relationships between our fellow man. Jesus had a lot to say about this, especially between brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of faith. In Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus this question, verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some of you may be counting. The point Jesus is making here is that you don't stop forgiving. You keep forgiving. Jesus went on to share a parable to drive home a scary and serious reality for Christians who don't extend forgiveness to others, who maybe stop or feel like they've had a limit to their forgiveness or extending that to someone who has wronged them. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in this parable, there is a master who desires to settle his accounts. He calls a servant in who owes him a lot of money, an absurd amount of money, and he demands that this servant pay him back and pay off his debt. Now, we read that this servant can't pay off his debt. It's an unbelievably high debt. And so what does he do? He just cries out for mercy. And the master shows him it. He erases his debt. He releases him. What a beautiful story, right? But then this servant, he leaves from his masters and finds a fellow servant, someone who owes him money. Not as large a debt as he owed his master, but an amount of money that he owed him. And he demanded that that servant repay him or settle his account. The servant, this other servant, said, I don't have the money. I can't do it. I can't settle my account. So what does this other servant do? He throws him in prison. And he tells him, it's until your debt is paid, you will stay there and you will rot there. Now, in the parable, the master hears about this, and he calls back this wicked servant. And he tells him, in verse 32, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you did with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus concluded with this, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. When we are allowing sin in our midst, if there is division between brothers and sisters in Christ, if there is an unwillingness to forgive or to seek reconciliation, that is going to help, that is going to hurt the body of Christ, not help the body of Christ. Because there is sin and sin has to be dealt with. Now in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul kind of gets into the the, uh, the illustration of how the body of Christ is like a body with many members. And each member has its own function or spiritual gift to serve and edify and build each other up for the glory of Christ. Now, Paul goes on to explain that, again, each one has its function. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, Paul says this, There may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, in context, it's speaking about when someone is sorrowful or grieving, then we all grieve and suffer together. And if someone is rejoicing and celebrating, then we all rejoice and celebrate together. But here's the point I'm trying to make here. It's this. Forgiveness and reconciliation carves out all the blocked channels of grace and love, and it clears the way for new and fresh, fruitful ministry. It allows us to edify each other to encourage and exhort each other and to love each other the way we God opens those channels of grace. 
He restores relationships. He brings unity to the body of Christ, and he does it for our good and for his glory. Now, Paul gives Philemon one more piece of information to help him forgive Onesimus, and that is this. Because the price of forgiveness has been paid. Philemon should forgive Onesimus because the price of forgiveness has been paid. Verses 18 and 19. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul understands that Onesimus owes Philemon for the wrongs he has done him. He understands that. He knows that restitution is lawfully required. It would be a just thing for Philemon to make Onesimus pay him back. But he also knows that Onesimus doesn't have anything to give. He is literally empty-handed, and he is throwing himself at the mercy of his master in this story. So what does Paul do? He steps in between Onesimus and Philemon, and he tells Philemon to charge Onesimus' debt to his own account. Does that sound familiar? I think it should. I said earlier that this book does not have explicit gospel preaching from Paul, but this story as a whole is absolutely an allegory for the gospel, right? It tells us of the gospel. Man has rebelled against God, our creator, our master. We've accumulated crushing debt, a debt that we cannot pay from our sin disobedience. The wages of sin is death. Justice demands restitution. It demands righting the wrong. Yet we are completely incapable of righting our wrong. Outside of Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. We are unable to pay the price for our sins. So we stand before God empty-handed and we throw ourselves at his mercy. But then our master came down from heaven in the person of Jesus and he stepped in between us and our debtor and he paid our debt. In full, he settled our account. He reconciled us to God, and it cost him his life. Colossians chapter 1, 21 and 22 clearly illustrates this, or communicates this. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled and approached before our master in heaven. And he did it by going to the cross and dying for us. And it wasn't out of compulsion. It was out of love. Now, after Paul tells Philemon that he will settle on Onesimus' debt, he brings up debt that Philemon owes him. And uh, scholars believe that Paul is referring to here this debt as spiritual debt that Philemon owes him because Paul led him to Christ. Paul is essentially saying, if you want restitution, I'll pay you. But I'm not going to mention that you owe me, what you owe me is inf- infinitely more valuable because I preached the gospel to you and you were saved through my preaching. But if you want to charge me, that's fine. And that's what it sounds like Paul is saying here. Now, Philemon could have been like, this guy, <laughs> the pressure, like, is he even giving me an option here? But I don't think Philemon was bothered by this. I think he was moved deeply by this statement because it led him to think about the great forgiveness that he had received from God, forgiveness that he couldn't afford, but was paid for fully by Jesus. Church, I want to leave you with this final thought and we'll wrap it up. Forgiveness has a cost. Forgiveness costs something. And that cost 
was great. And there's a lesson to be learned here. How do we view forgiveness when we view our neighbors who need forgiveness? How do we view forgiveness when someone sins against us, when someone seriously wrongs you? Is your forgiveness contingent on them righting their wrong first? Do we demand restitution before reconciliation? Or do we lovingly and graciously consider forgiveness in the light of what God has done for us in Christ? If the forgiveness that you and I have received as Christians from God costs us nothing and Christ everything, why then would we think that when we forgive it's going to be easy? Or that it's not going to cost us emotional pain or time or money or heartache? That it's not going to require us to humble ourselves and genuinely love and seek the wellness of those who have offended us or that we've offended and seek out reconciliation. Like, we are not God. We don't forgive like Him. But shouldn't we try our hardest to model Him in the beautiful act of forgiveness? Now, I'm not saying that in every situation where forgiveness is required that we forfeit our legal right to get back what was taken from us or to press charges over serious offenses— you would not be wrong in doing that. You would be just in doing that. But what I am saying is that as Christians, we should seriously think about what God has done for us in Christ before we set any requirement or condition on forgiveness and reconciliation. And I pray that God gives us the grace and the mercy to endure loss for the sake of showing the heart of Christ in our acts of forgiveness to those both inside the family of faith and for those both outside it. Amen? I want to wrap this up with just reading these final four verses, and uh, we'll conclude with prayer. Philemon 21:25. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.